overnight. I think it's really exciting for churches that have an existing expression now, where as younger people are experimenting with other expressions, I think Soul Revival was a great uh, example of how people can have two kinds of expressions happening within the context of being one family. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is great to have you along with us and we're um, really excited to be meeting again because I have Tim Bilharts. How are you? Hello, Joel. I'm doing really well. Excellent. And Stu, as usual, how are you? Hello, Joel. Feeling well? Yes, I am. Thank you. Excellent. Um, we are still in talking about engaging the youth um, and youth culture with the church and this time we are going to have a look at the strategic approach. We've been breaking down the four views of youth ministry um, Mark Center's book and looking at those different ones. So we have the strategic approach today. But before before we do that, Tim, cultural artifact, please, as we <laughs> like to throw out every so often or every almost every episode we're doing right now. So what would you say your cultural artifact is that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, cultural artifacts. So uh, we're thinking about we're thinking about the nineties. Um, we're thinking about youth ministry in the nineties. Um, I was in high school for the sort of the late nineties, and so my favorite style of music during that time was the kind of the the new punk scene and, and skater punk. So bands like uh, The Offspring, Blink-182, MXPX, uh, The Vandals, those kind of bands. Um, and in the Australian scene, one of the big ones was The Living End. Yep. Uh, we're kind of riding, uh, riding that tide. Um, and so their kind of breakout single was, um, uh, I can, can't think of the name. Um, we don't need no one to tell us what to do. Yeah, what's we're on that our song own. Okay, and there's nothing we can do. Keep going, I'll look it up. And uh, the name will come to Joel very soon. Yep. But um, that, I think, really defined that punk movement and a lot of the energy that punk had had, even in previous incarnations of punk, um, with the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and others uh, in earlier decades, where there's a rejection of the old and... As a youth culture, we're going to be doing our own thing. Uh, we don't need your voice. Uh, you don't take us seriously anyway, so why should we listen to you? We're going to go off and do our own thing. Um, and so that was very much kind of the spirit of um, punk um, and that kind of era, uh, which was great. Um, I yeah, I just I don't know if I necessarily resonated with that spirit of it, but it was really fun. Um, you know, music styling. We talked about a couple of episodes ago when you were talking about the the anger of the new metal scene. That I never quite got into, but the, there was a sort of a, a, a fun and um, silliness to the punk scene at that time. Um, and so, yeah, very hedonistic, just enjoy life, just go out and lots of skating and surfing, moshing, just uh, a lot of sort of frivolity. And, but that spirit of um, the young people, just we can just do our own thing. We don't need you as an older generation to tell us what to do. Um, is going to feed into our strategic a prisoner approach. of society. Prisoner of society. Thank mm. you. That's, that's, what, that's what it was called. Are they still yeah. recording? Um, I don't know if they're still recording. I, I don't recall any official breakup. Um, I don't oh. know. If it, yeah, um, I'm not sure when their latest release was. It's always funny. Those uh, there's a lot of you know those bands that are just have this cultural significance, but then they break up. Stu, you one of your favorite bands, the Beatles, obviously broke up at at some point. Was that a yeah, Sad day when you learn about the causes of that. <laughs> oh yeah, I was, the, the Beatles is probably one of the most famous breakups in history, I suppose. The um, yeah, that did Yoko Ono break up the Beatles? You know, that's the big, uh, still the qu unresolved question. Oh, what would you say? I think yes. that played a part. <laughs> <laughs> Very large. Part. Do you know any good breakup stories? Oh, my favorite one is the um, or one of my favorite ones is there's a recording of the Eagles playing on stage, and they're all just. Two especially are just t saying to each other how much they're going to kill each other after the show. Kill each other. <laughs> yeah, they're just going. Oh, I'm going to smash you or something. I have to. I have to. I can't remember exactly what they said, but I think um, they they obviously weren't too happy with each other. I was pretty sure. And then like there's like things like Pink Floyd, how they never talk to each other anymore. Um, but the one of my favorite bands, of The Darkness, have have had a breakup and a ref reformation. So they they recorded two albums. But in between the first and the second album, because they, they hit massive success, especially in the UK, mm. um, even recorded a Christmas single, which is pretty funny. <laughs> the Darkness recorded a Christmas yeah, single? Yeah, it's called um, Christmas Time, Don't Let the Bells End. Okay. Um, so they, they almost got number one, were beaten out by like someone like Mariah Carey or something like that. But um, uh, yes, the, the lead singer, who is one of my favourite frontmen of all time, uh, got quite 
hooked on cocaine and also taking a lot of laxatives to make sure he stayed thin on stage. So eating really badly, taking a lot of cocaine and then taking a lot of laxatives to make sure he didn't get too fat. That doesn't sound like a good recipe. <laughs> no. So then after the second album, I ended up going to rehab. Okay. And also broke up the band by dating the manager when and kicked out they kicked out the bass player because he was dating the manager and they'd agreed not to but the bass player had the most amount of problems with it so he was the one that was kicked out of the band because they had to keep him they kept wanted to keep the singer on because he's like the one of the key parts with his falsetto voice and all that kind of thing so mm. and then five or six years later they get back together after like because they're two brothers in that band and they got back together after playing on stage once with uh, playing a queen song or something like that so it, it's just it's funny how uh, volatile artists are <laughs> it's like oasis isn't it they were they had a pretty good breakup exactly. as well two brothers who yeah, yeah, real, real problems with each other yeah and very public breakup yeah very similar oasis to the darkness like they hit massive success in the mm. uk and then had a lot of issues going on after that but i don't think oasis are back together anymore no, no. i think they just perform solo yeah i think they still hate each other yes i know that liam gallagher likes to talk a lot about manchester city's football team Okay. They're just like, oh, let's let's go talk to Liam Gallagher. He knows a lot about football. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> onto the onto the strategic approach, Tim. Do you want to give us a summary of what the strategic approach is? By it's Mark Center actually writes that in the book. Is that right? Yes, this is Mark Center's own approach. So he is uh, he's the one who sort of collates all the different approaches in this book. He's the general editor of the Four Views, um, and so he's got his his other three mates who are pitching different approaches. But Mark Center's own approach is the strategic approach. Uh, essentially what he's advocating for um, is that a youth um, minister uh, disciples a group of youth and uh, gets the youth leaders around that and they form an intentional community of discipleship um, and as they grow up um, purposefully don't grow into the church that they were formed from but actually split off and go off and create their own unique church. Um, what he's trying to respond to there's a few things we've talked about on the podcast and we can tease out. Uh, one is this uh, homogeneous unit principle where you have uh, the, you split up the different ages and the different um, segments and you minister directly to them. So he's saying that's, that's a reality and so as we minister to youth, we need to recognise that that's going on. Um, also, the inability sometimes of the older members of a church to accept youth and to listen to youth so we've talked a lot about how in the shock absorber approach we are trying to intentionally listen to young people and let them influence us as they hit the shocks of culture they then disseminate those shocks throughout the church but it, that comes from having youth connected to the church and connected to the world and also the established church who are genuinely listening to the young people um, he uh, doesn't that, that sort of doesn't enter his framework but what he's saying is that we have this reality where the older church, the car, I suppose, in our model, uh, is not going to listen to the shock absorbers. They're not going to listen to the young people. Um, and so it's better for the young people and a community around them of leaders and young adults to go off and do their own thing and to start their own reality. Um, so that's where he comes from. He um, says a few sort of famous things I think we've referred to previously on the podcast, uh, things like, you know, uh, no one takes you seriously in church until you're at least in your mid-30s um, or older. Um, and so you end up with this situation where you've got a homogeneous group of teenagers who are graduating out of youth group, meant to assimilate into the larger congregation, and yet the larger congregation doesn't give them the time of day and doesn't spend, doesn't listen to them, doesn't give them the voice at the table um, until they're in their mid-30s. Um, and so that becomes frustrating for young adults and so they leave. So what he's trying to respond to is we don't want the older teenagers and young adults to leave our churches, obviously. We want them to stay connected with Jesus. We want them to be grow as members um, of his church. And so, but if we have this reality where they're not going to be taken seriously in the large church, maybe the best thing for them is to actually continue to grow up into a community uh, where they don't leave, they don't need to graduate, but they also have a significant voice. Okay. What do you, when you first read that chapter, what do you, what is your initial reaction to that? Does it sound like it's a good idea or is it more just we need to continue the homogeneous unit principle until we can possibly stop it working? 
Yeah, it's interesting because in one sense he is admitting that the homogeneous unit principle is a reality um, and the, this reality of the inability of the institutionalised church to listen to young people. And he uses a number of examples from um, the, the rock and roll era, from the Jesus people, um, from even uh, in sort of the, the 80s as well, of the formation of churches like Willow Creek um, and others, um, as examples of where this has worked really well. But then he also kind of pitches the idea that this new group this, that splits off will itself become an instant, uh, sorry, an intergenerational church, um, and so he's kind of got this vision for something that you know beautiful, this intergenerational reality, uh, and yet he thinks the only possible way that can happen is if the initial group buds off from the initial church. And it kind of breaks away. Breaks away, that. yeah, yeah, and splits off. Now, in his approach, um, he sort of pitches the idea that everyone's on board with this. So the older, the mother church, as he says, um, is for this idea. They actually um, recruit a youth minister who wants to grow and bud off this system. So um, the, the whole church is in on the plan, uh, but you've got this perpetual cycle of budding off new congregations from the youth communities that are growing up. Um, so it's, it's an interesting tension in the chapter that he's got between sort of realising that there's certain cultural elements to the church that you just can't change um, and also wanting to create new realities. Um, and so that's a, an interesting tension that he has throughout his chapter. In that model, what ends up happening to the existing church? Because if you're going to keep butting off, does that mean we're just waiting for that, like not to put too fine a point on it, to die off? Uh, in one sense, yes. I mean, he doesn't answer that directly in the chapter, uh, but he does talk about how... Um, we're often too tied to the idea of church being in a particular location, a particular building. Um, and so he's trying to free um, church from that. Uh, he wants to see the churches know the gathering of the people. Um, but if you have this reality where there's an older generation who are wanting to be stay tied to a particular building, particular location, um, then you just you let them be. Um, so, yeah, I guess, yeah, you end up with a place where in two or three decades' time you might not have a church there because everyone has grown up and, mm. and died off. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because we can talk about, like, the church isn't a building, is it? But I thought it was interesting also you talking about how it's just a given that the, the, the younger people in the church aren't going to be listened to. I was going to ask both of you guys a question, Stu, you might want to start. Why don't we listen to young people? Um, As a society, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think um, Mark Centre does make that point, Joel. He says that short of a revival, you can't, you've got to move with culture, he, he reckons, which I disagree with. Like, I think that we can uh, be countercultural within our culture. And so that's a point where I disagree with uh, the argument. But he is very good at showing how, um, how, as Tim was saying, that churches aren't listening to young people. And I think if you track it back, there's always been a sense that, particularly within Christianity, that the older generation passes on the wisdom to the next generation. And when you read in the scriptures, there's there's lots of encouragements for us to continue to pass on the gospel to the next generation. I think what can uh, muddy the waters a little bit is sometimes people pass on the gospel message in their cultural form to the next generation i think that's where the problem comes so that works okay if the culture doesn't change so prior to the industrial revolution the culture stayed the same for hundreds of years so each generation was having the gospel passed on in the same cultural format but what starts to happen in the industrial revolution is technology means that new innovations mean that people live different ways so each new technological advancement means that each new generation get used to living in a different way and so as technological advancement increases, uh, people become increasingly different to the older generation that was around before. So in the Industrial Revolution, people lived in villages and worked on the land and there was cottage industries. And within a generation, everyone was moving to the cities into these massive big factories and technology was replacing um, people in farms with steam-powered tractors and in the factories people were just now feeding these huge factories uh, so uh, the technolo technological world had meant that a new generation were living differently to the 
previous generation. So the difficulty for that generation was how do we pass on the gospel to this new generation that are living differently? And that problem only increases as technology increases. So the, the Industrial Revolution continues as long as there's technological change. So if you fast forward right up until our era, uh, I grew up in a time where, uh, let's take telephones for example, um, it, I, I lived in a house with a telephone, one telephone with one telephone number and everyone used to have to share the phone and we didn't even have an answering machine when I was growing up. So if my friends rang me and I didn't answer the phone, that was not a big deal. So they'd ring me, I wasn't there, I might be out somewhere. They'd try and ring me but it was like, oh, I'll see if I can get my friend on the phone and if I can't, it's no big deal. So either you ring back or you leave a message with mum. So you get home sometimes and there's be a little piece of paper with a message, oh, I'll ring so-and-so, oh, okay. But the other thing was that if someone rang me and they didn't get me, they'd say to themselves, oh, I'll just talk to Stu tomorrow at school. So there's no big deal. Now, fast forward to now, people text you and expect a response straight away or a phone call response straight away or a message app or Snapchat or whatever it is. So... The, the disconnect for me is sometimes younger people ring me and I think, oh, I'll get back to them tomorrow because that's what I grew up with. But then they get frustrated with that because they expect me to get onto it straight away. But their expect higher expectation of communication is just because they've got better technology. So what Mark Center is saying is very real. There's a very real disconnect between people who grew up, grow up with different technologies. Uh, and the problem is that uh, if I was going to try and impose the culture that I developed around the technologies that I grew up with on this new generation with these new technologies, well, they would find it very difficult to take on my culture. If you look at it within the context of our gatherings or our services, the 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 way we form our expression of church is some uh, some of the elements of that are theological and biblical, but some are strategically cultural. So some of the cultural expressions we have. Uh, are actually things we pass down to young people as well. And what Mark Center is saying is sometimes older generations get wedded to their cultural expression as much as they are to the gospel itself. And sometimes we find it really hard to distinguish what is our cultural expression from the era we grew up in and what is our actual, you know, the, the gospel, ancient gospel message that never changes and is relevant in any generation. And so what we've tried to do with a shock absorber is say, let's think through our theology Let's put the cross at the centre of who we are and then let's work out what strategic uh, theories we might use to help uh, create a culture that uh, expresses that and then what is our practice of discipleship and mission within that. And so our, our practice can be a bit flexible because our strategy can change a bit without changing the gospel. So we've, we've gone to a lot of extent within the shock absorber model to try and say the gospel message doesn't change but our expression can. Now, a lot of churches' uh, centre argues are not like that. So what we're saying with the shock absorber is we need to listen to young people and listen to their cultural expression as well as share our cultural expression and have a mix of both so that we can move forward together in discipleship and mission practice, keeping the, the gospel message the same. Centre's arguing that people who grew up in the um, 50s had traditional forms of Christianity and then after the youth quake in the 60s, young people didn't relate to those forms. One really good example is that people would dress up formally to go to church in the 1950s and wear sh shirts and ties and cut their hair short as a sign of piety. And that was considered to be a very uh, godly expression of um, a Christian. Now, a bunch of hippies turn up to a church in 1968 in San Francisco and they come to the door of... I don't know, let's say the first Presbyterian church in, I don't know if there is such a thing in San Francisco, but I'm just making this up. And they go to this church and they, they rock up to the church. It's, it's a, just an imagined scenario here. And they're all dressed in caftans and beads and got long hair and jeans and they, they look, you know, very different. And here at the door are two welcomers dressed in a suit and tie and a, and a lady with a really lovely formal Sunday best dress on. There's a very good chance that these hippies coming up to the church could have been turned away at the door by people saying, how about you go home and get dressed properly and then come back to church? Now that that is a very authentic expression from this older generation. And, you know, a lot of guys in the, in the 60s, older guys who'd fought in the Second World War for their country, found it really difficult to relate to young men who grew their hair long because they thought that was really ungodly and, and they shouldn't have long hair. So 
the, these sorts of questions uh, are in every generation. Uh, you know, for example, one uh, modern example is should we let kids be on their phones during church service? Now, for me, that's that's not cool for someone to have a, a phone and scrolling through um, social media while they're in church. But for young people who are always on their phones, maybe that's not so disrespectful. I don't know. I'm not having an opinion here. I'm just giving you an example that my cultural expression, where I just had a telephone in my house, uh, I feel free to just communicate with people one-on-one when I see them next. Young people are talking to people who's to say they might not be sharing the gospel message they're hearing from the sermon with someone outside of the church while they're listening to it. So I've got to be careful I don't just judge them by my cultural expression. So this creates a huge amount of different points to discuss and Centre says that's too hard, let's not worry about it. Let's let's let the old people have their suit and ties in the church and let's let the hippies go and start a, a Jesus commune. And that's what they did. They, the, literally the young Christians in the 70s with the Jesus movement left the established churches because it was too hard for that conversation to take place. Uh, the hymns and the liturgies of the established mainline churches were not relevant to that rock and roll generation and they wanted to express their Christianity through rock and roll and through music, guitars and drums. And in the initial stages of that youthquake in the 60s, Mark Center saying, well, the hippies just went and started hippie Christian communes. They did this in Sydney. There was a place called, the uh, a commune called the House of the Purple Door and the House of the Gentle Bunyip. There were all these cool hippie kind of little churches sprung up for young people. So what Centre says is, well, that's what they did in the 60s to solve the cultural expression problem. Why don't we institutionalise that now and start churches with young people? But rather than it being an argument where they argue and split, let's actually build that into the model for adults who don't want to change their expression and, and sort of grow their young people up to send them out. So they're almost being sent out as missionaries to their generation in their cultural expression. Now, I think we can do better than that. And, you know, when I first read about that, which I'll talk about later, but when I first read that in the 90s, I thought that was the opposite of what we're trying to do in Soul Revival by remaining at Guy Anglican Church. But we'll come back to that later. But I think Mark Center's argument is, is very clever because he's seeing detail that often Christians don't talk about. So we often don't talk about those cultural expression differences and we talked about the preparatory approach a couple of weeks ago, that assumes the young people will just take on the cultural expression as well as the gospel. And I think a lot of churches in Sydney where we live think like that. Yeah, the young people will just live like us with our expression. It's a fun, it, it is a fascinating thing, whether it's in church or in, a wide, in wider society, that we have ours, we've grown up with our certain cultural experiences and all that kind of thing, and then we see a younger generation going through something different or expressing it in a different way. And we're like, well, that's not what I had. So, mm. but it's funny that w- that's the weird thing, Tim, I think is that why do we, it's such an easy temptation to go, they don't understand me. I don't understand them. Let's just not worry about it. Like it almost sounds like centers saying, don't, bo- don't bother with it. Don't bother frustrating and just, just, turn the next page kind of thing but I feel like we're missing something in that would you agree with that yeah so I think as you said he has noticed a reality um, and he's turned that noticing of a reality into an actual model for ministry so we talked a few weeks back about the homogeneous unit principle that that just started as an observation from a ministry point of view um, that sorry from a missionary point of view that um, the people ended up going to churches with people who were like themselves. Mm. Um, and so the, the first people who were ta- writing about the homogeneous union principle were just kind of noticing a reality. Um, but that noticing reality then turned into an actual model. Oh, well, if, if this is happening, maybe we should in strategically do that. Um, we should intentionally try to pitch particular gatherings, particular churches, particular services at particular demographics because we've noticed that it works, therefore... We should take that on as a model. It feels a bit like Centre's doing the same thing. He's noticing the youth quake. He's noticing the Jesus revolution. He's noticing that there is a frustration that happens um, where young people are growing up and not being welcomed by the institutional church are going off and starting their own realities, uh, whether it's the hippie communes, whether it's the Gen X churches of the 80s, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the sort of the emergent church type things of the, the late 90s. Uh, He's noticing that that's happening um, 
and has turned a, an observation into a, a prescription uh, that this is maybe what we should intentionally plan to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of the reason that I'm passionate about an intergenerational approach um, is that we, I do think we miss something there. Um, the, the older generations are missing out on understanding Christ better as Lord and Saviour by not being able to see that there might be authentic discipleship happening with young people who have different cultural expressions. Uh, and the young people are missing out by not hanging out with the senior saints by actually realising that actually you can be a faithful Christian um, by having older uh, and different types of cultural expressions. So an intergenerational church, an all-age, all-stage, was just seeking to purposely bring those generations together uh, and say, okay, you, you've got cultural expressions. You guys have instant messenger and Snapchat um, and ways that you expect to be communicated with. And you've got um, people who grew up with a single telephone and you've got senior saints who have, you know, even the telephone was, you know, sort of a, a different technology. Um, you've got all of those coming together. Morse code. Morse code. <laughs> <laughs> um, carrier pigeons. Um, but you've got, when you bring them actually all together uh, and you, it helps you to notice that cultural expressions are not the gospel. Um, that actually Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, the kingdom that he brought in, the life that we are called to live under his discipleship, that is the gospel. That's what we have in common. Uh, and that is true for those in our churches who are 90 and 9. Mm. And when we have that as our unifying feature, uh, then it's, it's okay to just then sit and notice that there are different cultural ways of expressing that um, and to learn and grow through difference. Mm. Um, I was having a conversation yesterday um, with a couple of people just talking about the difference between sort of agriculture and permaculture. Uh, I don't really know that much farm about farming, so I may be completely butchering this image. But my understanding, the way I was using it was, you know, when agriculture, you've got one particular crop uh, and you might have, you know, acres and acres and acres just growing corn. Um, and that, you know, an abundance of corn you can grow when you're specialising in that. Whereas a permaculture... Uh, is intentionally grow, growing different types of plants all within close proximity with each other. Mm -hmm. And what you actually find is that you may get a bountiful harvest um, in the short term with particular agricultural crops, but there is uh, payoffs that you actually lose um, nutrients in the soil um, and all sorts of other things that come in. You know, you're more um, susceptible to to blights and to insects and pestilence and all those kinds of things. Whereas a permaculture, because there's lots of different plants growing all together, uh, they're feeding the nutrients in the soil in different ways. They're actually feeding off each other in different um, ways. And so there's actually something that comes from having difference there um, that is really beautiful. And so in a, taking that to the church context, uh, yes, it, it's sometimes really difficult for teenagers to understand what's going on with the middle-aged um, Gen X adults mm. who have very different cultural expressions and have different understandings of how you um, faithfully worship Jesus, how you faithfully come to church and express your discipleship. Um, but that, I think, centres kind of noticing that and saying, uh, don't try to bridge that gap. Allow the younger people to go out by their own service and do church in culturally appropriate ways, culturally expressive ways. Uh, and that allows uh, the Gen Xs uh, or the boomers before them to worship God and have authentic discipleship in their culturally expressive ways. Um, and so while it allows that approach, um, my argument and our argument would be actually maybe there's something beautiful that can happen when you bring those together, not to diminish either culture, but actually to allow both of them to coexist in a permaculture type way. Mm. I've got to say, you guys are killing it with the uh, the analogies at the moment. We've had <laughs> stir fries and then we've got permaculture versus agriculture. So that's, that's really, really cool. Um, I like that idea and I like the idea of that we're talking about is like when we embrace difference, as we've said before, that's when we actually start like our discipleship and mission is strengthened by doing that. Um but what I was interested in was we're talking about centre saying we need to like perhaps bud that church out of the youth ministry or the, the younger generation. Is he trying, I think you might have said it's true, he's trying to institutionalise that section of the church. But 
we've talked about before that institutionalizing doesn't really work very well. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So he's. I think he, my view is that I think he's looked at what uh, uh, the hippies did with the uh, the Jesus movement, and he's also looking at say um, uh, Willow Creek, which started as a youth group, and then the youth group. Uh, went and started their own church in a movie theater. I think when they first started, they became one of the biggest attractional ministries in the world, and they became incredibly influential. So he, but but interestingly, that church seemed to be very successful with baby boomers. But then the following ge- generation, Gen Xs, didn't relate to that um, baby boomer movement as as well, uh, which is interesting. So centers sort of institutionalizing that whole idea that uh, maybe it's. A good idea for young people to keep starting new churches in each generation which is i think in a way it's the necessary outcome of the homogeneous unit principle because the first stage of the homogeneous unit principle is let's start different church services for different age groups and he's just taking it one step further and saying instead of starting a youth group for the next generation of youth raise them up with a youth minister to send them out and start a new church for them. And you see in the 2000s that that became a very common model for church planting in the 2000s. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Mars Hill at the moment with Mark Driscoll. There's a new podcast that's come out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Well, when Mars Hill came out, I personally saw Mars Hill as a centre's model, which is let's start a church for young adults, to young of young adults to young adults and so just let, let's uh, ta- have a target age group that we're going to start a church to and a lot of the church planning that came out of Acts 29 and other models was uh, actually driven by church planning to young hipsters and so all these hipster churches started but that wasn't even the beginning of it there was a lot of um, the emerging churches in the late 90s uh, were were doing that and I think there's a lot of pressure on us even when we were at uh, our age at Guymer Anglican Church to leave and go and do something different somewhere else because all my friends left Guymer Anglican Church to go to other churches or start their own things and some of my friends uh, in the from university uh, went along to some of the emerging churches there was a church in Newtown I think it was called Cafe Church and so some of the Cafe Church crew said oh you guys this is back in the 90s they were looking at what we were doing with soul revival after we did stay at Guymere and we were doing soul revival at Guymere to stay at Guymere so we were uh, a new expression at Guymere of youth ministry but we kept going to the evening service we invited our elders to come along to our gathering on a Saturday night too some of our crew used to go to the traditional service in the morning we were trying to say that we can have our cultural expression as young people but we're still part of the big family at Guymer Anglican Church and we were committed to stay and right back earlier in the early 90s um, I had a conviction to stay at Guymer Anglican as long as uh, I could and my wife and I said unless we get asked to leave we're going to stay at Guymere and Soul Revival uh, was growing at Guymere and we ended up staying at Guymere for 20 years which was really exciting so we were kind of the opposite of the centre model. We were trying to stay within the church and continue to have that conversation that we're talking about, even though it could be hard sometimes. We stayed to have the conversation. But some of my friends from Cafe Church were saying, why don't Soul Revival's amazing. You should start your own church and start Soul Revival. And that was back in the 90s. People were putting pressure on us to think about starting. But we didn't want to do that because we didn't want to leave our elders so the church planning impulse back in the late 90s and then 2000s was for young people to have a young person's church but if we did that we wouldn't have our 80 year olds and you know i remember one night we had at soul revival where we asked a retired doctor to come along and give us a talk on sexuality and he came along and talked about back in the day we called it um you know a, a rello bash where we had all the the elders come and hang out with us and dr bonamy um just shared some of his wisdom from the word of god about how god had designed us as sexual beings and how he wanted us to actually um express that and it was just a really powerful moment as as young and old were listening to each other so he didn't come in with some moralisms and say this is what you have to do and impose his cultural expression on young people he was talking about the biblical realities that we all sit under and we did that together now if we'd have left and become the you know the trendy church plant to the young generation we would have missed out on that night and so what we tried to do at Guymer Anglican with Soul Revival was stay within the context of we were Guymer we were Christians first and we're Guymer Anglican second and then we were part of Soul Revival third and that community uh, idea was that we had 
uh, an opportunity to be. Now, there were some compromises we made as a result of that, but they made compromises too. But that's also really beautiful. So uh, one of the things that the church wanted us to do was continue to have an evening service that was for younger people. So we had an intergenerational expression on Saturday and then we went to the Sunday evening service. And then the church encouraged the young families, even though we all hung out with teenagers on a Saturday night, they encouraged the young families to go to the morning contemporary service, and we did that. So if we were our own church, we wouldn't have gone to those homogeneous expressions, but we did for the sake of staying at Guy Anglican Church. And I think it's actually quite amazing we stayed together with those two cultural expressions for 20 years. That's like half of my life I've stayed uh, as a youth minister at Guy Mir, but I'd grown up for another 20 years part of that church too and it's my home church and so I spent 40 years at Guymer Anglican Church and it wasn't until um, the church said that they wanted to go in a different direction with the youth ministry and not have that intergenerational youth ministry that we thought it would be uh, time to to um, Matt and I were the leaders of Sorrel Revival and we thought it was time to resign then but it wasn't Matt and I Matt and I didn't have any animosity towards that because we'd had such a wonderful 20 years together but what we also thought was we wanted to be listening to our elder generation and our leadership. And when our leadership wanted to go deeper into the homogeneous unit principle, uh, I think it was great uh, to, to then say, yeah, um, we've had a really great experiment for 20 years with staying together. And, and it, was a, it was a very different kind of leaving than the church didn't grow us up to leave because we were a different expression. We grew up together in that context and I, I think it's really exciting for churches that have an existing expression now where as younger people are experimenting with other expressions I think Soul Revival was a great uh, example of how people can have two kinds of expressions happening within the context of being one family and when you think about it that's what our families do I mean my, my boys listen to different music than I listen to uh, they have different lifestyles than I listen to, but we all live in the same house. And I watch different movies, and my boys laugh at me when I've got a Western on, and they're like, oh, there's Dad watching a Western again. Like, Elijah doesn't care about Westerns. And then, you know, Elijah laughs at me for wearing my Billabong shirt, and he's walking around in his champion clothes or whatever, and he's wearing his, his different styles, and we're all in the same family. So I think rather than starting a church for different styles, we can actually have a church of different styles. So you'd rather keep the band together than break it I up. I think that's a great a great <laughs> way of expressing it. Rather than letting those differences drive us apart, right. let's actually try and use those differences to help us to become more creative for as long as it works for both of us. I mean, it's not something we have to push no matter what. I mean, in the end, I think as we left Guy and Ranglican in 2010, uh, we left. We didn't take all the young people with us when we left Um like the centre argument is, the centre argument is all the teenagers and all the youth leaders go and start a it's new church. When we did leave, um, and we were invited to church plant by the bishop and ENC, ENC actually asked Guy Ringlikin if they would be okay about uh, gifting this new church plant a launch team of 30 people. And the launch team of 30 people, some were youth leaders, some weren't. Uh, and as Guy and Anglican were very gracious and said, yeah, that'd be fine. When 30 people approached us, we went back to the church and said, well, these 30 people have approached us. Are you okay with that? The senior minister said, yeah, that's those people are fine. And as uh, I talked with the senior minister about leaving, we talked about you know, shoring up the youth ministry before I left. And so when we left, our launch team from Guy and Anglican only had one teenager. It was my son, Ethan. And we decided not to start a youth group for a couple of years until... Guy Ranglican re-established uh, and when I left we had at least 100 teenagers on the roll who were staying at Guy Ranglican and I rang around 30 people who were willing to stay on as youth leaders at Guy Ranglican so there was a healthy youth ministry that stayed and we started a new church not two young people by young people but we wanted to have two strong churches that was our our hope so yeah so even as we left we weren't doing the homogeneous unit strategic approach we were uh, we were very uh, we were planted as a daughter church from our mother church at Guymer Anglican, but it was um, not the centre's uh, you know approach, and it wasn't the trendy church planning approach at the time, which was to plan a young adults church to young people. So uh, that's where Soul Revival is different. There are benefits for having churches that are aimed at certain demographics, and 
uh, I think that's not uh, necessarily a bad thing, but I think that it's very exciting, as Tim says, to have some farms that are growing corn and some farms that are permaculture. And so I like the diversity of different approaches existing within the same broader church as well. So just as in a local church, I think we can have different diverse cultural expressions. I think amongst the church planting community, we can have different kinds of church plants. And so Soul Revival isn't just the only way to church plant. It's just another example. We're all age, all stage. Some churches are to a certain demographic. Tim, did you want to add to that? Sorry, I thought you Oh, I thought you were giving me the eyes you wanted to add oh, no. on top of that. Um, I, one thing that I thought worth teasing out too is that is the um, the way that we focus on the atonement theology. I feel yep. like when you talk about theology, strategy and practice, we say we don't change our theology. I feel like that perhaps is a, a key part that is possibly missing from the tr- strategic approach. What do you think? Because we talked about that we are planting almost planting because of, oh, sorry, they are almost planting in the strategic approach because we just need to be like what the culture says. But I think when we talk about a atonement theology, that transcends it, as you were talking about earlier, Tim. Do you want to guys want to tease that out a little bit more? Yeah, so I don't think in the strategic approach in that chapter in the book that they talk explicitly about a theological framework for it, Tim. I, I don't know, do you? Uh, I'd have to go back and read it carefully. I, d- I don't remember, though. I, my recollection is that it's primarily coming from when you talk about yeah, theology, strategic practice. It's the strategy um, that mm. is really leading there, rather than a um, a deep reflection on theology. Mm. Um, and so, it because it's the strategy that it's driving. Um, and so, in that way, it's it's the sociological realities, I guess, in one mm. way that is driving his approach. Um, so, seeking to respond to that in a really helpful way, um, which again is not to say that it's you know sub. Christian or anything like that. Like he's, you know, deeply, wants deeply formative Christians who are reaching out missionally to the world um, and preaching the gospel of Jesus. So there's, there is theology there within it. But in terms of actually how do you do church, it is the sociological realities which are really driving the, mm. yeah, the strategy. And I think Mark Center and Pete Ward would come from that incarnational theological framework that says that Jesus became a Jew to the Jews. And so let's, let's start. Uh, church missionary endeavors to people in their culture in their in their context uh so yeah i think i think that incarnational theological framework would probably be partly driving it yeah yeah okay that's interesting um i thought that uh, again as maybe we try not to frustrate people like the last chapter what was it um the missional approach that frustrated you what would you say to people again that are thinking we're in the homogeneous unit principle. We want to change things. We want to we want to take more of an intergenerational approach. We don't want to be a strategic approach and take everyone out of the church and leave. What would you guys suggest would be some ways that um, if someone's wanting to pursue that in terms of their ministry, what could they start doing in terms of getting an idea about maybe generating some momentum behind an intergenerational approach? Yeah, I think my first thought would be that it's low-key, long-term and relational. Like we did at Guy Anglican, and we were there for 20 years ministering together and it's it's about the relationships that you can build together as you actually put the one another passages from Scripture into practice. You bear one another's burdens, you encourage one another, you build one another up and creating spaces within your church for people to come together and connect. I think food is a great way of doing it. The old way of doing it in churches was a thing called the fellowship tea in the Anglican church in in my growing up and that just meant that after church on a Sunday morning everyone would bring up something like a cut sandwich or a little meat pie and or you know, sausage rolls and, you know, there'd be all these plates and they'd be all put down on a big trellis table and the whole church had come together and have lunch together and everyone would take a bit of, I mean, these days I don't think all the health concerns would would it would allow that ex- exact expression. But there you go again, that's an old expression. But in some ways I think the cut sandwiches helped me stay a Christian through my teenage years because I used to love going to church for a fellowship tea for a cut sandwich little chicken sandwich and cut in a little triangle. We used to love those. And while you're standing there with your paper plate and your, your cup of cordial and your cut sandwich and you're talking to an older person, you're finding out about what, what they think about Jesus. And those conversations about faith, I think that's the first step, having places where we can have conversations. So if a church has you know, a morning service, uh, the traditional morning service, a contemporary family service and a youth service, maybe some kind of bringing together for a meal 
uh, all those different people. But Tim might have some more thoughts. So I think starting simple anyway is what I would argue and giving it time to grow. But what do you think, Tim? Yeah, well, I was reflecting on the fact that when we allow our um, theology, particularly the theology of the atonement, to be driving our strategy and our practice, um, that allows us to hold loosely to our own cultural um, artefacts um, and our cultural expressions. Um, and so it, it might be that, uh, the example you used before, you know, having a, a paper Bible in front of you is really important. That actually, I don't know if there's a way in which you can be genuinely Christian and have your phone on <laughs> while you're watching the service because, you know, who knows what you're doing. Mm. Um, you could be flicking through Facebook, completely tuned out, mm. or you might be actually, you know, tweeting or Snapchatting your friend about mm. the great point that the preacher just made. Oh, I was just super encouraged by this. Um, those of or us you might be reading an electronic Bible, I suppose, if you're super um, onto it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or getting into a commentary. You getting into know. a commentary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so there's the, the, there's different cultural forms, but when um, we're allowing our theology um, to to shape, that we can hold those loosely, um, and we can go with a curiosity. And so as as a when I'm preaching and I you know see someone on their phone. Um, that might my immediate instinct because I don't that, that's not my generation uh, is to assume that they're disengaged, um, but it might be that they're really engaged. Uh, I don't know, um, but holding loosely to my own cultural preferences, um, I can go with a genuine curiosity and say, "Hey, uh, how how'd you mm. go to the service today? Um, you know, oh, I noticed you were you know flicking on your phone. Was it was." I mean, and not not in a judgmental like I'm coming down a crack down on you, but just a, a genuine curiosity of what you know. What do you find that helpful? Um, and also, it might help me to realise that um, my preaching style is not engaging to a particular demographic or age group. Mm. And I go, oh, okay. So, um, and you know, if they if they're humble enough to say, oh, actually, I found you a bit boring, <laughs> um, and I just I re- found it really hard to concentrate. Um, I can then, again, hold that loosely and say, okay, are there things that I can do different? Like help, can you help me as a preacher change? Can you help me shape the way that I'm um, presenting? Is there something I could be doing better? Would it be helpful if I had more visuals on the screen? Would it be helpful if I added some more elements of this? Um, Would it be helpful if I provided like the tweetable little sentence that you could then send out to your friends? how can I be shaped by that? So I'm lo- we're looking for ways um, to, to accommodate to each other. There, there's a great chapter um, by a guy called Gareth Crispin, who's a, a UK guy who's interested in intergenerational ministry. He writes a chapter in a book that's all about the importance of accommodation, uh, which is where those who are older actually set aside their own preferences, come down and listen to the younger voices. And likewise, you're helping to train these younger people to accommodate to the older ones as well. But um, like Paul talks about with the older and the, or the stronger and the weaker brethren, it should be the emphasis on the, the older, more mature saints yeah. to be the ones who are able to set aside their own preferences uh, to allow the younger expressions um, to come through. And so it might be the older, mature saints. Uh, I certainly you know, go back a generation um, when I was coming through as a young adult or teenager. Uh, the older generations at church would find it really frustrating to wear a hat in church mm. and that would could cause a big issue because yeah. for them the cultural expression it was dishonoring to how special church was to wear a common variety hat uh to church um and, and so men shouldn't have their head covered you know they take that um and apply that as uh a hat a baseball hat in church yeah 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 and so that would be um uh, that would be confronting to them to have that cultural expression um but when we have, you know, we're focused on the atonement as being the way in which we, the framework which we see church happening and ministry happening, uh, when we're able to be accommodating to each other, um, uh, the hope is that a mature saint will look and see a hat that's frustrating and go, oh, I find that really disrespectful. But rather than rousing on the teenager, we'll just come and genuinely engage with them um, and be able to hold that cultural expression with loose hands. Um, but then in the conversation they have with me, maybe I realise, oh, maybe I am offending them. And because mm. I can hold my cultural expression with loose hands, maybe it's okay for me to choose not to wear a hat and leave it in the car or 
you know, park with my skateboard outside the church or whatever <laughs> it is. Um, but that's something that we need to continue to embed in the culture framework and the, the teaching that we're doing and doing that explicitly, really clearly communicating those kind of accommodations to all generations that this is we don't want to separate out cultural expressions we don't want to separate our generations um, but coming together does provide that mixture and it's going to prov- um, there's going to be some compromise there's going to be some accommodation um, and there's going to be things that I personally am not passionate about but for the sake of my brothers and sisters in the church uh, that it's okay because actually it's not the cultural expression, it's not my personal preferences that are the gospel. What do you reckon, Shua? Yeah, so you don't need to start a church for people who wear baseball caps and a church for people who don't wear baseball caps. But it can be a really difficult conversation because I remember the first time I wore a baseball cap in church, one of the uh, wardens came up behind me and clipped me on the back of the head while I was sitting in the pew and took my hat off and he said, I'll give this back to you at the end of the service. So that set up in me uh, a bit of tension and a bit of, oh, I, don't, I didn't like the way I got treated there. And But he was also thinking, I don't like the way you treated me because you didn't even talk about that. You just walked in with your hat on. Um, you know, we, we live in a beachside suburb. Some kids come straight from the beach to church on a Sunday night and they've got sand on their feet and they walk in with bare feet. And that's considered to be disrespectful as much as the hippies walking into a church with long hair. In fact, uh, you know, the principle behind this too is do we make moral decisions or decisions based on love? And sometimes we make a moral decision that you, you never wear a hat or you, you have to wear shoes or and we make that a, a, a rule and then it, all the young people have to learn all those moral rules. Well, that's one way of doing it. But then the way Tim just expressed that was using love as a principle, which is I really love you, I want to work with you on this. Um, and you see it in scriptures too, like when Paul takes Timothy to Ephesus, he had Timothy circumcised. Now that's really interesting because Paul had been writing to all the churches saying you don't have to get circumcised to be a Christian. But when he takes Timothy to Ephesus to get circumcised, isn't he actually contradicting his own principle? Well, he's not really because what he's doing is he's thinking if Timothy, who's a, who's a Gentile, goes to this congregation uncircumcised, will spend the whole time talking about circumcision. And he wanted to go and talk about the gospel. So he said, Timothy, let's not worry about having this big argument about circumcision. Let's get you circumcised so it's not an issue and we can just get on with the gospel. And that's a loving decision rather than a moral decision. Uh, to to explain that a little clearer, like you can see this worked out in history. For example, uh, you can see it even on a world stage. Well, like when uh, Second World War happened, Winston Churchill, who was the leader of England, said that all Nazis are bad and anybody who fights a Nazi is good. That's a moral statement. Now, the problem with that is in post-war world, um, some of the things that Stalin was doing in in communist Russia was just as authoritarian and just as terrible as what Hitler was doing. So he had labelled the communist regime good before and during the war because, well, not before, but during the war because they were fighting the Nazis. So everyone who fights a Nazi is good. Well, actually, no, that is, doesn't work because because after the war these communists were killing their own people like something like 30 million people died at the hands of their own government like that was dreadful uh you see the same thing in the war on terror president bush said all terrorists are bad and anyone who fights a terrorist is good that's a moral statement but then when you look at uh the uprising in chechnya well are they freedom fighters or are they terrorists it's a bit hard to do that so, so love actually gives us a better paradigm to work with rather than making these moral statements about well this is how i express my christianity this is my moral position on phones in church and you will you will actually not bring your phones in church and i know some churches where they have a basket and people have to put their phones in the basket when they come into youth group now i'm not saying it's necessarily a bad idea it might be a good idea but um i think that can tend towards being a moral statement that using a phone is bad and not using a phone is good. But what if there's a young person who's got all of their notes in their online Bible and all their highlighted passages on their online Bible in new version, and by putting the phone in the basket means they can't actually take notes in church and they're actually taking notes on their phone. Now, I'm not saying every teenager who uses a phone in church is on notes. There's some doing Candy Crush. There's some you know, playing Clash of Clans. There's some you know, on Snapchat. I know that's 
the downside of that, but to actually take love as a principle rather than a moral statement. Uh, one last example of that is I had really long hair in the 90s, as most of my friends did, and when I first started being friends with Aboriginal people out in Western New South Wales in Brewarrina, uh, I went along to an Aboriginal community and the Christians in that community said, how can you be a Christian and have long hair? Because the Bible says that a man with long hair is shameful. Now, my, my response was, well, what is long hair? How long is long hair? And they, but we had this big debate the first weekend I went out there about hair. And then I came back home and a very wise Christian elder said to me that story about Paul and Timothy going to Ephesus. And I thought it would be less dramatic to cut my hair than Timothy having to get circumcised. So for love and for the gospel, I had my hair cut and I got a short haircut so that next time I go out to Brewarrina, we didn't have to talk about the theology of hair. We could just get onto the gospel and we could all talk about that because I was coming in under their leadership and I was actually wanting to participate in the mission they already had going in Brewarrina. And as as a servant, I wanted to serve my elder Ike, who was going to, to be leading me, and, and so we could talk about the gospel. Now, some of my friends in Sydney said, oh, you, you don't have to compromise, you know, that's terrible, you, you don't have to cut your hair, and they wanted to have that argument. And I, I just didn't think it was a meaningful, relevant thing for me because I think I was working on that principle in my heart of love rather than morality and that might be something people might want to just have a think about when it comes to the cultures coming together Uh, you have as tim was saying so articulately can we have a loving conversation rather than a moral conversation so is it about drums and guitars in church or is it about sitting down and saying what are you trying to achieve with drums and guitars because i remember at guymer anglican it was mid 80s before we had guitars and drums in the church because some of our elders thought that 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 was satanic to have syncopation in church that's a very old conversation that's not being discussed these days it would have been easy for my generation just to say oh it's too hard to have that conversation we're just going to leave and start our own church with guitars and drums but we didn't we persevered and we stayed there and we had that conversation and i'm so glad we did because there was so much relational benefit from having the ages come together and even though i did disagree with their point of view about guitars and drums they ended up being humble like tim was saying and changed their mind which was really lovely and i learned so much more uh and in fact the story i told you about the uh relationship i had with aboriginal people it was one of my elders that i listened to who said uh you need to care more about the whole world and the whole of the christian church not just your little youth group in your church So if I'd have gone off with my little youth group and started a church, I might have just stayed with those blinkers on for the rest of my life. But because I persevered and I had that conversation with Alf Norman, we got in the car one day and he drove me out to Moree so we could meet some Aboriginal Christians. And we became really good friends. And then I ended up cutting my hair and changing too. So I think that's the gospel, that we we love each other and we submit to one another in love, as it says in Ephesians 5. I was just thinking of a more recent example. a couple of years ago, we were talking about uh, the new high-rise apartments that we've got mm. across the road from our church. Um, and the, the Sutherland Shire, where we are, is typically quite a, a white Anglo area, um, beachside uh, suburb, and, and so a lot of that culture um, permeates our church and, and our suburbs. Mm. Um, but with the new high-rise coming in, uh, we've got a, a number of people from Asian backgrounds who are moving into um, not just our suburb, but directly across the road from yeah, it's us. It's exciting. Um, and, and we had um, our, our sister Grace was a student minister at the time and she's from um, Asian descent and we asked her what, how can we continue to accommodate the way that we do church uh, in ways that will be appropriate and um, accessible to um, our new um, neighbours across the road. And one of the things she pointed out was uh, actually there's a number of times when people have stood up to preach wearing shorts um, and uh, typically, uh, she said, you know, for people of my cultural background, if we walk into a church uh, and the, the preacher or the leader is not wearing long pants, there's no way we're going to be able to take them mm. seriously. Um, and so that was something that we then talked about as a preaching team uh, was, okay, well, it's, it's, only, it's a small thing. I mean, it's not circumcision. It's not even cutting your hair. It's just make sure you put on pants and not shorts mm. if you're going to be leading the service yeah. or preaching. Um, and that way, it's just a small little accommodation to say that um, when we do have our neighbours come in, uh, that they won't just look at us and think, oh, well, this person's a joke. Why mm. would I take what they're saying seriously? Mm. Actually, there's just a little bit of respect. We, we've crossed um, that communication 
barrier. Um, and so, so they can hear the gospel, so they can actually understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And we've changed a little bit as a result. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Grace and her sister Michelle and Ian and Wang and Louisa have started another soul revival community uh, in the West Ride area. And that's growing beautifully with, mm. with a lot of people from Asian background. And I think it, you're right. I think it's the, the love principle that's operating there rather than let's start a church for uh, people with Asian culture and, and Anglo culture. Let's be one church. And so having all those guys at West Ride on our parish council and on our core group uh, has been really helpful because we've grown and changed as well so yeah I think that's the exciting thing about staying together rather as as much and as long as you can rather than necessarily saying well because there's a cultural difference we have to start a new church I think yeah I think you can stick around a bit longer than that yeah I think like uh, something that I'm picking up from what you guys are saying is that well Jesus is the great equalizer we Mm. talk all the time that doesn't only reconcile us to God, he reconciles us to each other. So that means that we can, as you're talking about, approach these differences in love um, because Jesus allows us to do that. So that's what I'm... And, and approaching in love allows us to listen as well. And that, that's what I've really got from you guys today. So I really appreciate taking the time and to in enlightening me as well as our listeners. So thank you very much. Um, that wraps it up for this episode though. And uh, thank you very much for listening, guys. We appreciate it. If you've uh, got any questions or comments, you can email me at joel at Um we can, We're also on a Discord server, which is, you can have a chat on and we'll be monitoring that for sure if you ever want to ask a question on that. Uh, that's in the show notes as well. And if you're interested, you can check out all our other stuff on YouTube and uh, on your favourite podcast app, including the Chip Lunch podcast, where we talk about growing up as a Christian. Tim, you've been on that. Stu, I think yes. we'll have to get you on that one day too. Yes, that'd, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be cool. But anyway, uh, we'll wrap it up now and say thank you very much for listening and one way. One way. One way.